0: to the Westminster Town Hall Forum where for 25 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis and moderator of today's forum. We invite those of you listening on Minnesota Public Radio to visit us in person. All forums are free and open to the public Information on the forum can be found online at ewestminster.org. We would like to welcome to our audience in the sanctuary today, students from the Hill School in Wyzetta, from Southwest High School in Minneapolis, and Perpich Center for Arts Education in Minneapolis. How about these students making themselves known to the radio audience? A little noise? It's a a lively bunch here at Minneapolis uh, downtown and Westminster Church today. We're welcoming all of you to this important gathering of the forum. It's now my pleasure to introduce the final speaker in our spring series on the meaning of America. David Halberstam is one of our nation's most distinguished journalists and historians. Perhaps no other writer has so insightfully chronicled the changes in America during the second half of the 20th century and the challenges we face in the 21st. Mr. Halberstam graduated in 1955 from Harvard, where he served as managing editor of the daily Harvard Crimson. He began his career at the Daily Times Leader in Mississippi and later at the Nashville Tennessean, where he covered the early days of the civil rights movement. His experience inspired his book, The Children, which tells the story of the heroic contributions of young people in the struggle for civil rights. In 1960, Mr. Halberstam joined the New York Times staff. He came to national prominence and won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on America's presence in Vietnam. His book, The Best and the Brightest, remains the definitive account of how and why America went to war in Southeast Asia. Five of Mr. Halberstam's 20 books have been on sports, including Playing for Keeps, his portrait of Michael Jordan, and his most recent book, The Education of a Coach, on the career of NFL coach Bill Belichick. Mr. Halberstam edited the book, Defining a Nation, Our America and the Sources of Its Strength. In the introduction, he writes, I've become more convinced than ever that we are always engaged in a great marathon debate and search for a just, democratic society. The forces at play in this struggle change and shift all the time, but the debate continues. Ladies and gentlemen, we are honored to welcome to this town hall forum on the meaning of America, journalist and historian David Halberstam.
1: For those high school students up in the balcony, I just want you to know that I wasn't always this old. Um, I went back to my 50th college reunion a year ago, and I marked the occasion by pondering the vast social, political, economic change in America. In those years since I entered college in 1951, we were a radio not a television generation. And I still know which radio shows preceded which on Sunday night, by the way, in case you've forgotten, the great Gildersleeve came right before Jack Benny. Uh, I know the words to the Tom Mix Ralston song, the words to the Hudson High Fight song of Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy, largely because I was not an all-American boy. And I know the words to the Chiquita Banana song, and I will mercifully not sing them to you today. (laughs) Radio was a slower, more languid means of communication than television, which came after it. Television demands footage and action and violence. Radio was uh, the better carrier for baseball with its slower rhythms. Television likes football because it is more violent. We are probably, those of us formed by radio, a stodgier generation, not as given to change or fad as those who came after us. We still favor the tweeds and blazers of our youth. It was a simpler America. We predated the dramatic change, Uh, caused by uh, the sexual revolution and the change in contraception which preceded it. It was probably the last generation where young people did not live together before getting married. By the time I graduated from college and then also from high school, I did not know anyone whose parents had been divorced nor anyone who used drugs. We were criminally square. It um, was an America of much lower expectations. No one talked about a fast track or disposable income. The young were not seen as an enviable commercial market. Our children were not bombarded with commercial messages by companies wanting them to become lifetime customers. When young men graduated and took a job, they often believed that they would work for that company for the rest of their lives. It was very much a white male society, much, much more so than today. I was with this, in the city room uh, last night of the Star Tribune, and the thing that struck me was in that room of about 100 young people where I spoke very casually, half of them were women. By the way, the men sat on one side of the divide and the women on the other. Jackie Robinson had just joined the Dodgers two years earlier and sports like almost everything else was a white enclave. It was still a one-income middle class. The young women of our generation went off to college with us, got better marks, and then married us and were supposed to have children, and then drove the family station wagon. That has changed dramatically, and changed in the lifetime of many of the women of that generation. It is hard to imagine a country and a culture changing so dramatically in a person's lifetime as America changed in ours. When I entered college, there were 140 million of us. Now we are close to 300 million more driven, more diverse, more complex the dow the year i entered college was 250. yes 250. there were i wrote in one article two computers in the country i got a very angry letter back from someone who said there were four we have four in our family it was an america still coming of age just beginning to feel its independence, its muscles, still debating whether it would go from the innate isolation of the past, protected as we were by those two great oceans, to a new internationalism. There was still a presumption not to last very much longer that whatever it was, the British did it better, and we had better learn from them, that they had better diplomats, better army officers, better universities, better newspapers, and better accents. At Harvard, the sense, the nascent, the nascent sense of an America feeling its muscle was palpable. And in the government department of Harvard in those days when I was an undergraduate, were these men about to make their careers. Kissinger Henry, Bundy MacGeorge, Brzezinski Spiegnev, and Schlesinger James, all young, teaching fell. There was a lot of heat coming out of that department in those days. Now we are a hypopower, so powerful, our weaponry so great that we need no allies. Others, we can get others to join us for psychological reasons, but we always like a flag or too along. but we believe, at least in this administration, we can go it alone. We are also, I think, and there's no empirical evidence on this, but I'm sure I'm right because I see the evidence around me in the two islands in which I reside, Manhattan and Nantucket, um, that we are dramatically more materialistic than we were. That all those years, a half century of being bombarded by those television messages have done their work. We define ourselves by Uh, much more by what we own and what we do that is material than our parents and our grandparents did. It is the nature of our culture. It is not necessarily the most attractive part of it. So where are we today? Um, A few years ago, just before the start of the millennium, I gave a series of lectures about where America was and the main forces changing it and challenging it. And the most important at the time, of course, was the end of the Cold War and the belief that much of the newly liberated energy financial resource could be used for domestic purposes. I think in that heady, indeed, almost euphoric atmosphere, we, were all, we all underestimated the new forces that would be in play as so many forces repressed on both sides of the Cold War were unleashed. The rise of both nationalism and tribalism throughout the world, the fragmenting, for example, of what was Yugoslavia into violent tribal struggles and genocidal ones is a classic example of it. I spoke in those lectures of any number of new domestic forces. The change from when I was in college from a one-income middle class to something with both pluses and minuses, the two-income middle class with both parents working ever harder and having less time for their children, people working harder and harder just to stay where they were in the middle class and hoping to be able to afford soaring college tuition costs. I mentioned one of the most profound changes in our lifetime The change in the nature of work, from work when I was young, driven by blue-collar muscularity, without muscle, to work driven by education, without muscle. Thus, a workplace where a 115-pound woman with a college degree is more valuable than a 200-pound former high school football star who wants a job on the Ford line or the GM line, except that those jobs are gone, thus the greater importance of education. I mentioned that that this change and other comparable or allied ones have had considerable impact on the rise of cultural rather than economic issues in our politics, because so many men feel they are not doing as well as their fathers, and are not as influential at home as their fathers were. I do not think the social, cultural, economic, even psychological impact of that can be underestimated, and we are just at the beginning of it. It is, in fact, part of the dilemma of the modern Democratic Party that so many people feel economically vulnerable but resent what they see is the party's tilt to the feminists. You can unscramble that one on your own later. I spoke about the coming of a new non-white America, very different from my childhood in the 30s and 40s, and the great new influx, influx of Hispanic Americans, not just in the South and Southwest, but throughout the entire country, and the potential rise once again of nativism, which is always out there. And I am not surprised by the current debate over immigration and who is allowed to stay in the country. By the way, if you want to come to New York and come to Manhattan and see it at work, I can just suggest that you go into any kitchen in New York or probably any city in America and ask to see a green card. And there'll be, uh, it's, it's, if there was ever a don't ask, don't tell policy, it is there. I mentioned what I thought was our greatest strength as a society in addition to our social fluidity, and that is our magnificent upper educational system, not just Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, California, Chicago, but our great land-grant colleges, the Big Ten schools, what we have right here. California as the nation of California, that part of Boston inside Route 28, which is the nation of Boston. And this allows us to be wonderfully resilient and regenerate as a society and to stay on the cutting edge scientifically and economically. We are, in that sense, a beacon to the rest of the world. We are not just an economic and military superpower, but most important of all, an educational superpower, something that allows us to renew our strength and our wealth again and again. And we dare, dare not lose it, and we dare not wage a war on science, as we are doing these days. How careless and short-sighted when somebody who is the head of a great scientific company, like a Bill Gates, talks so openly about how we are slipping in face of our competitors and the government of the United States does not listen. Shame on us. We do not stand, in addition, on past achievements. We celebrate, as no other society does, the ability to rise above that attained by your parents and to do it in just one generation. My favorite story along this line is from I.I. Robbie. The great uh, physicist who was part of the Manhattan Project, born in uh, Austria, and one year he won the Nobel Prize. A journalist duly showed up to interview him. What do you think? The journalist asked Dr. Robbie. What do I think? Robbie answered, I think that in the old country I would have been a tailor. But we have as a nation an enormous capacity for renewal and regeneration. And some of that is the upper educational system, and some of it is our immigration policies. But I mentioned as well our shame, our weakness in K-12, a national shame. But I felt that in all too many venues we were slipping, and that we were losing far too many kids at too young an age, American kids, and that that was not just Undemocratic, but it was un American, and that there was rot in our elemental foundation. And I think when I think about the gap in education at this level between what my daughter and I suspect the children of so many and grandchildren of so many in this room are privileged to enjoy and what so many other less fortunate Americans faced, I am reminded of what John Kennedy said. In his inaugural speech, one of his best lines, if we cannot help the many who are poor, how can we save the few who are rich? And I mentioned that one of the great surprises to be about America was the change in the nature of our exports, from exporting cars and to exporting manufacturing goods to now exporting our popular culture. And I mentioned the change wrought by technology from a blue-collar, rather Calvinist society to one because of a rush of in- inventions in communications, a communication society for time, and now an entertainment society from embryonic little television sets, black and white, small screens, to larger screens, to color, to cable, to satellite, to with cable instead of four or five channels. Four or five hundred channels, three or four alone doing nothing but replays of Law and Order. In effect, a giant theater in our homes where I mean Sam Sam Waterston's locking up someone even as we talk, um, where we expect to be entertained instantly, every night, and where the great sin is not to get something wrong or to be in bad taste, but to be boring. And I mentioned how we are both addicted to it and on occasion resentful of it as well. And in how way, so many ways, some good, some bad, it changes our values. We might, however, ponder the increasing difficulty of making complicated political decisions in a society that increasingly wants, more than anything else, to be entertained. And as our attention enter- span becomes briefer and sp- briefer, we get our information and our political news in sound bites, and pretty soon we will think in sound bites if we are not careful. And finally, I mentioned the world of Islam aflame, angry over its fall from centuries ago of greatness, explosive and dangerous, futile in many ways, uh, but with access to the most modern instruments of communications with which to fan its feelings of grievance. That, of course, is a terrifying combination. And I suggested that a critical part of our policy towards that part of the world was that we not, not become the lightning rod for their anger, so much of it ill-defined and poorly focused. I did not mention in those speeches terrorism. And like everyone else, I was behind the curve. And then came September 11th and then the invasion of Iraq. I've got a limited amount of time, but I would like to talk to you about Iraq as I conclude today because I don't think the author of The Best and the Brightest can come here and not talk about it. Um, I was pessimistic before we invaded, and I am more pessimistic now. I never thought it would work. I came to my own adulthood in Vietnam. I had a bitter education there, like most reporters who went there and most officers and and infantrymen who went there. I was targeted by two presidents who were critical of my work. John Kennedy asked the publisher of the New York Times to transfer me to Paris or London. And Lyndon Johnson, taking time off from his very busy duties as President of the United States to double as Minister of Truth and Patriotism, called me and my young friend, Neil Sheehan, traitors to our country. So these are a few of the things I said before we invaded. First, that we were about to punch our fist into the largest hornet's nest in the world, and that the consequences would be vastly different from what we expected. They, the Iraqis, might hate Saddam Hussein, but for a variety of historical reasons, we would not be welcomed as liberators, especially for doing for them what they should have done for themselves. Um, it was. I thought, given the already major commitment to a war against terrorism, a sidetrack and draining limited resource likely to separate us from allies and potential friends in the area, it was, given the complexity of our relationships in the Middle East, the exact opposite of what we needed to be, wise and patient and strong. We would, I thought, be doing the assorted terrorists in the area favor moving targets over there for them in their home area, stretching our logistics instead of theirs. I did not think we had made the case on weapons of mass destruction, nor come close to proving that Iraq was a primary supporter of bin Laden, one so theocratic, the other so secular. I believe that our leadership, had gravely underestimated the capacity of the other side to resist once the first military phase was over. We would, with our great superior military technology, do that quite well, the race to Baghdad. But the second part would be about urban guerrilla warfare and terrain more favorable to them, their territory, their timetable. And I feared their ability to nick away at our kids, two or three a day. I thought we were utterly ill prepared for it and that that would likely be a bitter, draining stage too, and it is. Just the other day, writing some concluding parts of a book on the Korean War, one I'm finishing up, I wrote a few sentences about America and Vietnam as they faced each other in the spring of 1965 that I believe are applicable today in Iraq. America's strength, its military arsenal and weaponry, were highly visible on the eve of that, its weaknesses below the circus. The Vietnamese weaknesses were very much on the surface. Their strengths were beneath the circus. I feared that in an urban guerrilla war, we would be in a very dangerous deficit intelligence situation. They would, for obvious reasons, know where we were at all times, identified by our uniforms and skins, their own racial profiling, while we would not know who they were, that would put our young servicemen under unbearable pressure in situations which were beyond dangerous. The movie they were watching in the White House, all those men who had not deigned to visit Vietnam, who had other priorities as the vice president with his five deferments once said, All those men who thought they knew so much about the world without venturing from our shores and thought that those of us who had been critical in Vietnam were wimps and that Colin Powell with his two tours in Vietnam was a wimp. The movie they were watching was patent. The movie they should be watching, I said, and I suggested to all of you in this room and to your children was the Battle of Algiers by Gilles de Pontecorvo, which is a brilliant, brilliant movie about the French-Algerian War, about French troops caught in Algiers, uh, almost like a documentary, although it's a feature film. And if you see it, you will not want American kids to go to Iraq. The most important long-range aspect of this war is something our leadership, I fear, knows nothing about, and I suspect cares nothing about, since they do not seem in any way conservative and caring about the consequences of the future. But historically, it may prove the the most lasting. And that is that every night, for the first time, in the Arab world, in the Arab newspapers, and on TV, in the Arab language, with Arab spin, are going to be images live and in color of what is happening there with their spin. We can complain all we want about the coverage of Al Jazeera, but we should have known that going in, that there would be that tilt. It was going to be part of what we took on. Uh, We are therefore doing their recruiting for them for long for long into the future, for what will be a very long time in the future. This is a historic juncture, and there will be deep consequences for our children and grandchildren because it has come that nicking away more virulently, violently, and quickly than I expected. For all my pessimism, I am stunned, as I think are many Americans, on how quickly it has all unraveled. When I used to give this lecture over the last two years, I had to add that a great, great number of the senior military, two-star, three-star, and even four-star, some still on active duty, some retired, agreed with me. Now I don't have to make that ad. They have spoken for themselves. There is no easy way out no good or preferable situation or positive outcome it doesn't work it isn't going to work we don't have anything that works for us on the ground our values do not white christian capitalism do the values which work so well in Europe at the end of 1945 in recreating that continent in the marshall plan inapplicable here as they were inapplicable in Vietnam. So we're going to have to pull back, and it will be painful. And I think if there were a draft today, most people would agree sooner rather than later. There's an awful lot of people in this country with 19, 20, 21, 22-year-old kids who know that this is wrong, know that it doesn't work, but are a little soft on it. And the reason is there's no draft. So I think this is the worst foreign policy crisis of my lifetime. Um, I have, I think there's no easy answer, but I have great faith in American democracy, in its resilience, and its elasticity. And I think no matter how great the pain in the long run, we can deal with this, make ourselves strong again, and get on to the better kind of nation, the better angels of our nature, as Mr. Lincoln once said. Thank you very much for adding my name to so distinguished a list of speakers.
0: Thank you, David Halberstam. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Church and the moderator of today's forum. Our guest today is journalist and historian David Halberstam. While the ushers collect questions from the audience at Westminster, I would like to thank the Hoganander and Baker Foundations, sponsors of today's forum, and all the organizations and individuals who support our mission to promote public discourse on the critical issues of our day. We invite you to join the Westminster Town Hall Forum in the fall for our series America as Global Citizen. Further information will be available online at ewestminster.org. Mr. Halberstam, if you would now return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience wonder if you might continue where uh, largely where you left off in terms of the Vietnam War and the Iraq War and perhaps uh, speculating into the future, if you would, about what impact this current war will have on us, on our self-understanding as a nation.
1: Well, I think you ought to remember that in the year 2000, some 35 years after uh, John Kerry left Vietnam, a central issue in the debate between him and President Bush was their respective service or lack thereof the medals of one in Vietnam. And if you calibrate time, it is like in 1952, Dwight Eisenhower debating Adlai Stephen and the central subject being what they did in World War I. It doesn't go away. So if we take Vietnam and the lingering resentments and divisions which have been seized on, I think, by people who don't care very much about Vietnam, we have to understand that there will be a lingering pain from this, that it won't go away, that it is not going to be successful, that there will be accusations. And the accusations will not necessarily be a just one. The people who um, have been right will somehow, as they were in Vietnam sometimes, attacked for having been right, for undermining the country and the flag. Um, I, th- I was um, a terrible student at Harvard, and on the 50th anniversary of my reunion, I got inducted into Phi Beta. In our, uh, Graduation, our commencement speaker in us new 5 was John Deutsch, former head of the CIA, and I think number two in the Defense Department, or vice versa. And he's a very tough, hard, unsentimental guy. And he said, get out, get out now. It doesn't work. It isn't going to work. It's going to destroy everything else we do. Self-evidently, it is destructive to the economy. Self-evidently, there are serious issues of." in terms of terrorism that, in the country itself, self-evidently we have challenges from new competitors like China and India. I think the stuff that we have got to meet, we cannot go on the kind of automatic pilot that we've had. There, what the Chinese are doing, ought to be sending up a kind of Sputnik-like warning, but we are not paying much attention. I just think there's a host of questions that have come out of us that are going to be damaging, that it's going to be damaging to the economy, damaging to the families that sent these young men, and damaging to the soul of the country. I had breakfast the other day with uh, Chuck Hagel, the uh, senator from. Uh, Nebraska. I'd wanted to meet him for a long time. I, I liked his internationalism. I liked that he'd been in Vietnam. We had corresponded a little. We'd met at a Kennedy, a library, a meeting on Vietnam. And we were finally able to get together. And I just liked everything about him. And I came back and told my wife how much I liked him. And she said, well, he's much more conservative than you. And I said, yes. But I said, Gene, I felt that we were from the same country. And I don't always, I don't feel that so much anymore. I mean, I don't, I, when I, I, I'm going to digress. In the midst of the swift boat attacks, I didn't know what country I was in. A man, young man goes, he wins the, the silver star, the bronze star, a couple of purple hearts, and proxies for people who have not gone are attacking his medals. That just wouldn't have happened in an America that I knew when I was growing up, and I, it made me feel that I didn't recognize the
0: country. In your work on Vietnam and coverage there and your writing, you spend a good deal of time talking about the leadership and uh, the best and the brightest in our nation at that point. Can you compare the Secretary of Defense during that period with the current Secretary of Defense?
1: Well, it's always nice to have somebody who's always right and never wrong, who is contemptuous of senior military leadership, knows the answers. No, I don't think I can make a comparison. I don't see. (laughs) I, you know, do not be too smart too quickly. I think the. um, I think there is in the current Secretary of Defense. I think there are two kinds of people. In the, um, in the administration who have pushed for the Iraq thing. And he is one of the triumphalists. I mean, a, a significant misreading, I think, of what the end of the Cold War meant. Uh, we, the idea that we won the Cold War or that Ronald Reagan won the Cold War, I think the Soviet Union imploded it was never a really great power. Those of us who were, thought it was a limited power, dangerous. A, a, what did uh, Helmut Schmidt call it? Upper Volta with the uh, missiles. I mean that, I mean, it could do certain things, but it couldn't do most other things. Um, when it imploded, we were a bipolar power. Nobody else could have the hypopower. But it didn't mean that whatever we tried to do in the underdeveloped world would work the kind of things that did us in, in Vietnam, where we had absolute political superiority, but the other side had absolute, uh, po- we had absolute military superiority, uh, superiority. The other side had absolute political superiority, which meant that we could win any set piece battle. But the other side could keep recruiting and keep coming. They had a dynamic formed out of the French Indochina War and driving a colonial nation out that we could never dent. Um, it off. Um, That's really something that I think the Secretary of Defense today does not understand. I mean, my wife has never seen me so angry as I came in one day a couple of years ago. I've been working out at the gym in the mid-afternoon and I was screaming and she thought I'd been in a fight on the street. It was not. I had watched the President of the United States land on an aircraft carrier with a mission accomplished sign, which to me was like saying, the war was over, It was like saying, after one inning and one out in the World Series in the first game, you've won the World Series. I mean, it had barely begun. I think there's a lack of understanding what the end of the Soviet Union meant in terms that limited our power nonetheless. And then, of course, the ability to get the intelligence you want and exclude the intelligence that you don't want, to find some uh, extraordinary representative of Iraq that you just, that tells you what you want to hear and decide that he is the future of Iraq. I mean, all these things come together in a heartbreaking way.
0: Several questions from some of our high school students in the audience about uh, the role of journalists. Can you comment on the role of journalists in the coverage of Vietnam and the role of journalists in the coverage of the current conflict? For instance, you favored journalists being embedded with our troops in Iraq. Do you still hold that opinion?
1: Um, Journalists matter when the policy is wrong, when it doesn't work. And that's when journalists really matter in a free society. um, When I went to in Vietnam in 1962, there was a really small group of us. And the Kennedy people had upgraded the commitment there from 600 to about 18,000. They didn't want to send in combat troops, but they didn't want because of what had happened in domestic politics when Chiang Kai Shek fell on the mainland of China. They didn't want to lose Vietnam as we lost China, as if China was ever ours to own. So they did this halfway program. And when it didn't work, the people in the field first tried to report to their superiors in Saigon that it didn't work. And when their superiors in Saigon said to them, in effect, do not ever report that way again. Report that we are winning, or you will not go from colonel to brigadier general, or from light colonel to colonel, which in effect was the back channel word, um, they turned to us. They turned to the journalists. So we became a ventilating system for the bureaucracy. It was not a press struggle. It was a struggle within the United States Army between those in the field actually fighting the war and those in Saigon and Washington who were reflecting the political desires of the Kennedy administration, in effect, a bad policy. When the policy doesn't work, journalists become infinitely more important. I will quickly slip over to embedded journalists because I, I, I think that the mistake there is that somehow the journalists who were embedded were toadies, and I don't think that was ever fair. Uh, first off, we've had in, embedded journalists in all wars. Ernie Pyle, great Ernie Pyle, was in effect and embedded journalist. So One of my great colleagues in Vietnam, a wonderful young reporter named Jack Lawrence, was embedded with Charlie Company for a time and was up in the Highlands and probably did the most poignant reporting on Americans in combat for CBS by dint of that. When I was young and in Vietnam, there were maybe six or seven of us, so you could go out on your own. In Iraq, there might now, because we're in a communications entertainment age, there might have been a 1,000 journalists showing up in regimental strength. So the army legitimately and the Marines had a right to put on some controls. And I saw the embedding as part of it. And I didn't worry that everybody, all my liberals said, oh, god, the reporters are in the tank. They're going to be agents of the Pentagon. I didn't think so. I thought that, the, first off, I thought that the race to Baghdad would work well, and they would reflect that. Um, and then when, once they got there, it would not work well. All the things that I've talked about today would take place and, it, you know, that the other side would be playing on its, its turf. And when that happened, because I'd been a young American in Vietnam, I had great faith that young American reporters talking to young American military men would trust each other and each would tell the truth. And that has happened. The story about, oh, I think a year or so ago, a wonderful story in the Washington Post about, I think it was a young woman who was with a Marine outfit which, and the young men in the particular platoon were very alienated and angry. And she was interviewing them and they gave her her their names and spoke caustically of what it was. And she said to them, was quoted in the story, are you really, aren't you afraid? Are you afraid? Why are you willing to use your names? And one of the young Marines said, well, what can they do? What can they do to me? Send me to Iraq? So I have great the imbe, the real embedded people who I uh, the people who you, uh, who I think tilt too much to the government in the way that embedded is implied in this is are the people who are rather senior in Washington, powerful and in the networks and in some of the news. Uh, rooms there, the bureaus there, who don't want to be out of step with the government. And I think that was true in Vietnam, and I think that that was true on the eve of Iraq. There wasn't enough ventilating of opinion. People like me, who were likely to be somewhat pessimistic, were not being put on nearly as much. Uh, That's always been true, and I believe that the extra leverage that the administration got because of September 11th, I think both the Democrat and the media were on their back part of their feet. They they were really a sort of intimidated in that period right after September 11th, and I think the administration knew how to maximize the leverage that went with the intimidation.
0: We have several questions about religious overtones of American culture and politics today. Would you care to comment on the role of religion in uh, the political landscape of America today, as particularly opposed to, say, uh, during the Vietnam years?
1: Well, it's amazing how powerful and open the voices of religion have become, and how there are morality checks on us, seemingly, as never before. And how those morality checks don't seem to make a difference between personal morality, which is always attractive, and political morality, that is, someone can obey all of the Ten Commandments, but have a very bad political character. Uh, we have from the British notes on the meetings between Blair and the president of the United States, the president of the United States talking about how to provoke Saddam Hussein into an act of war so that we can strike at him. That's very troubling stuff in terms of political morality on the part of someone who, on the basis of the people in the fundamentalist movement, have no problem with his personal morality. It's so interesting to go back uh, almost Half a century to think of 1960 when the young John Kennedy was uh, running and he was Catholic and he had a very good chance to be the first Catholic president, and people were nervous that the Pope was in the trunk of his car. And it's very, you might do well to take a look, read the transcript of the time when he spoke to the Houston ministers, A, a turning point in that campaign. He was quite brilliant. They were filled with all kinds of prejudices against him. And he spoke. It was, it was Kennedy at his absolute best. And it's as good a statement on politics and religion, and, and, uh, religion as we can have. I think I love people who are religious. I think it makes people better. It makes this country better. I think that many Americans going out every day and on their own helping neighbors and doing things, trying to make communities better. But I believe passionately that it is a private, private thing and that the surfacing of this kind of religiosity as a political force is a very dangerous thing. Our fathers, grandfathers, mothers came here to escape the power of majority, the feeling of one group that it knew the truth, and its truth was a truth that you had better salute. And what made America best at its strongest moments was the blending of these beliefs and truths and the respect that each group had for the other, and that you could go off and work and be part of a community, even if you had different religious beliefs, which in the old country were the kind of beliefs that people went to war for.
0: You admired the courage and the activism of young people during the Civil Rights Movement. You published a book on the children of that era. What might the example of the young people of that time teach young people today? Or what would you say to young people today, confronting the array of issues that we have in our culture?
1: Well, I think we underestimate how terrific our kids are. I think they're wonderful. You know, everybody will go around complaining about the young generation. And then you ask somebody and say, you know, what is your son or daughter doing? Oh, working on uh, issues of AIDS in Africa, or uh, working on the Thai border with refugees or working on an inner city school. I mean, I think that the the sense of volunteerism is powerful. I think if we had, and I include the Clinton administration in this as well, I think if there were leadership that encouraged it. I think if in something along the lines of the GI Bill, that young people, in addition to doing these things because they're right and doing it out of altruism, given the cost of education, if they served time in local police forces or did a certain kind of teaching or work in hospitals, got some uh, credit for graduate school, it could be a smaller version of the GI Bill, which nothing has ever boosted the economy of this country like the GI Bill. We have never gotten back so much on so small an investment as the GI Bill, which is an exact kind of partnership of the government and the private sector that we should not lose sight of in a debate where it seems to be that you have to, if you are not all for the private sector, you are for undermining the energy of the country. But the small investment the belief in our own young men coming back from World War II exploded in the American economy, and there are many ways that we could do this again. Um, I, our daughter's 26, and she got out of college, and she went into a wonderful program called Teach for America and went to rural Mississippi. There is nothing she could do that would have made us so proud. And I think there are. I see that in her friends. I see that when I'm with people. I think there are the young people are ahead of the people who run the country and have been for about 20 years.